Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning, good morning. How we doing? Oh, that's even better than I thought we were doing. I love that. That is great. Uh, well, what's good, church fam? Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Marcus, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 55. We're going to kind of just jump straight in. So over the past couple of years, uh, we are starting to realize as a society that life is tough. That, that it feels as though our world is unraveling right before our eyes and at an alarming rate. There have been a ton of shootings. There has been a pandemic. We are still in a pandemic. There are so many things, as Aunt mentioned last week, that we could grieve over. And sadly, the things that we are experiencing are not just affecting us on the inside. They are actually affecting us on the outside to varying degrees. And I don't think I really need to convince us. We've, we've all been through this, right? For the past five to ten years, we've all lived through a lot. But, just in case I need to do that, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, an estimated 19.1% of U.S. adults had an anxiety disorder in the past year. An estimated 8.4% of, or 21 million U.S. adults, had a major depressive episode in 2020. The suicide rate in our culture continues to climb, claiming over 4,700 people. And lastly, as of 2020, 46.2% of American adults have been to a professional counselor or therapist. Needless to say, emotional health has taken center stage in the last couple of years from a national level. But still, as the church... We still haven't talked about it as much, right? And even when we do, we oversimplify it or we generalize it. And what I would love for us uh, as a church family, as, as City Church, is, to be, is the ability to be able to, to acknowledge and celebrate all of the blessings of the Lord. Yes, we need to do that. But we also need to acknowledge, appropriately acknowledge, and experience all of the difficulties and pains and sufferings that we come across. In short, I want us to learn what emotional health looks like via the Bible, through the lens of the Bible, which leads us to David, who, as we've seen over the past few weeks or so, has been through some stuff, right? Like, my dude has been on a roller coaster, and that's just the things that we've covered, things that he's done to himself, yes, but things that have also been done to him. To recap more specifically for you, his father thought so little of him that he wasn't invited to the find the new king search like the rest of his brothers. 
And eventually, when he is anointed king, there's no parade, there's no pomp, there's no circumstance, none of that. He's actually sent back to the sheep to tend for them. He's sent back to the lowest job. He's hunted by king, uh, the current King Saul multiple times. When he, and when he finally does become king, he's got all of these enemies around him just waiting, waiting to kill him. He sexually assaults Bathsheba. He then has her husband put on the front lines of a battle that he should have been at. He should have been leading the battle, and instead he has her husband put on the front lines so that he can die, so that he can be killed. Also, he could marry Bathsheba legally. He loses his children in various instances because of his sin. And that's just to name a few. So saying David has been through a lot honestly may be an understatement. Yet somehow, some way, he navigates all of that to come out on the other side following and worshiping God. But how, right? Like he goes through all this. How does he actually follow and worship God through the midst of all of this? Like this is a lot. Like how in the world does David not be consumed with bitterness and anger towards his father? When his father's like, hey, David, you just keep tending the sheep. I'm going to take the rest of your brothers and we're going to do this thing together. How does anxiety not cripple him while Saul is hunting him down to kill him? How does he not do like all of the other kings would do when confronted by Nathan about his sin against Bathsheba and say, well, Nathan, it's been nice knowing you. How does he instead repent of his egregious sin and accept all responsibility and all consequences? When everything seems stacked against him, how does he continue to follow and worship after God? Well, for starters, we talked last week about lamenting and how David cries to the Lord because he knows that his refuge is a person and not a place. That his refuge is the one who is with him wherever he goes. And while this is a very pivotal moment for David, um, being able to handle much of what is going around his life, there's one more thing that I want us to be able to focus on today that David does so well. And that is actually reorienting himself back to God. Reorienting himself back to God. And so this idea of reorientation is the action of changing the focus or direction of something. And for us as followers of Jesus, to reorient ourselves to God is to simply remind ourselves about God and all circumstances. There are many psalms in the Bible where we find that David both laments and actually also reorients himself back to God. And Psalm 55 does just that. And hear me say this, this psalm starts with David lamenting, um, but I'll be upfront with you, David doesn't really hold anything back if you've read it. Some of the things that David says in his prayers to God may actually make you gasp a little bit, just a little. 
He pulls no punches. And it's that realness that I want us to really take note of today. So as we read, I really want us to be able to relate to David. I want us to feel his pain. I think oftentimes it's very easy uh, to read and not feel, right? Um, Kind of what's being read. But today, as we read, I want us to be able to feel that. So if you need to close your eyes while I read, or if you need to, to, to read along, do that. Feel free to do that. If your thing is journaling, do that. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes for you to feel what is being read, I want you to do that today. Let's start in verse 1. It says this, Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me and I am distraught because of what my enemy is saying. Because of the threats of the wicked, for they bring down suffering on me and assail me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. So David here, he is uh, processing his fear his anguish, his pain, his complaints to God. He he feels overwhelmed by the horror of those that would want to do harm to him. Verse 6 says, I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. And the church said, amen. Amen. Some of us in the room can relate very strongly to this, right? Some of us here today are in a difficult spot right now, and all we want to do is run away. Some of us feel overwhelmed right now. Maybe it's a relational strain. Maybe it's a financial strain. Maybe it's work. It's just really tough for us right now. And we'd much rather just fly away and be at rest You feel like maybe, just maybe, if you could go live somewhere else, if you could just get a new job, maybe if you could just get a new set of roommates, that that will be the fresh start. You'll need to be okay. Verse 8. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and storm. Lord, confuse the wicked, confound their words, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. So David isn't just talking about how this injustice affects him, right? Now he moves to how it's affecting the city. And in verse 12, it gets personal. Matter of fact, it gets really personal. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But as you, man like myself, my companion, my close friend... Et tu, Brute. Part of David's plan is 
coming from the fact that the person who is harming him is one he used to call a companion, a familiar friend. David experiencing betrayal right now. The one he trusted is now out to harm him. The one that should be fighting by his side is now against him. Some of you know what that is like. You can empathize with David right here. The the last person you thought would be against you has now sought to uh, cause you harm. And that's where David is right here. Verse 14, with whom I once rejoiced sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshipers. David is saying, man, we used to worship together. We used to be beside one another, worshiping God. We used to receive God's counsel together. We grew up together, and now you're trying to harm me? Verse 15, let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead, for evil finds lodging among them. This is raw, isn't it? I don't know if you've ever uh, been in a place where someone has caused you so much harm that you would wish evil on their life. That they've hurt you so badly that you would pray to God to do away with them. This is where David is, and he he pulls no punches, like I said earlier, in this conversation with God. He holds nothing back. If he feels it, he vents it to God. He doesn't wait to be politically correct. Oh, come on, somebody. You know exactly what I'm saying. He doesn't wait to be politically correct when he's talking to God. He just comes right out and says it, God, I wish you would have killed him. David is being raw and unfiltered with God. Have you ever expressed this sort of rawness with God before? I mean, I'll give you the gift of going second, but for me, I've definitely not done that. I've definitely not done that in my life. Now your turn. No. Um, because it's not like, it's, it's like we're not supposed to talk to God like this, right? Who talks to God like this? If you've ever heard a prayer, no one says, God, please kill them. And if you have, well, that's different. That is different. Um, but here's the thing. God already knows your emotions, right? He already knows what you're feeling. And see, David knows that. David knows that God knows what he is feeling, all the emotions that he has. So he just gets it out of the way and says, God, this. If you have a really good friend, a spouse, or a counselor, it's very easy for us to to tell them everything, right? 
It's very easy to divulge everything to them. Complete with all emotions intact. Like, well, you know, so, so so-and-so, they did this, and man, I tell you what, I was so upset at them, I'm so angry at them, and you know what, another thing. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all been there before. But have we ever thought that God would actually want to hear that same conversation? He wants your honest thoughts, not your politically correct thoughts. He wants your sadness, not just your happiness. He wants your your anger, your indignation. He wants everything that you are feeling right now in this moment. I'm sure some of you have mental images of what you're feeling right now. I can see it on your faces. (laughs) That's what God wants from you. We see David doing just that in the first 15 verses. He's expressing everything to God. Every single feeling he has, he is talking to God about it. He is saying, God, you are my counselor. You are the person that I talk to. He's expressing all the feels. But then, in verse 16, we see a bit of a shift. We see this reorientation back to God. We see this focus turn back to God. And it's not that he stops being raw or honest with God. No, he he continues to be real about the reality that he's in. But beginning in verse 16, what he starts doing is being honest about himself, about who God is. See, previously it seemed like he was preaching about how messed up this world is and how messed up uh, uh, those in the world are. But in verse 16, he starts preaching to himself about how good God is. And as we read, I kind of want us to take note how many things he says about God as he is starting to shift that focus, as he's starting to reorient himself. It says this, verse 16. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. That is the first one. Evening and morning, evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress. And number two, he hears my voice. Number three, he he rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change. Number four, he will hear them and humble them. Because they have no fear of God. Verse 20, my companion attacks his friends. He he violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. 
David is still making sure that God knows, hey, remember my friend? I hope you didn't forget about him. Lord, don't, don't forget what he has done to me. Verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord. And here's the next one. He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And here's the last one. But you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust you. David is preaching to himself. He's preaching a greater reality than all of his pain. Is he going through it right now? Yes. Without a shadow of a doubt, he is going through it right now. But he is saying, through all of this pain, when I talk to you, Lord, I know that you hear my voice. Some of us in the room need to hear that right now. We, we need to hear that we can actually talk to God and he will listen to us. That our words will not fall on deaf ears. He finishes on a note that says that God will bring judgment on all who do not follow him and that he will trust him. David says, God, I'll let you handle all of that. Everything that is going on, I will let you handle all of that and I will trust you with all of this pain. So catch the sequence here. David in this psalm, in Psalm 55, he, he laments his problems and his pains and his suffering and everything he is going through. And man, is he going through it. And then he flips it and he reorients his thoughts back to God. And not only that, he speaks the true things about God over himself and decides to trust in God despite everything that is going on in his life. This shift, this shift that, that David makes is very powerful and important. He processes his emotional responses to his problems, but his emotional responses don't rule him. Let me say that again. He processes his emotional responses to his problems, but his emotional responses don't rule over him. He feels his emotions. He acknowledges that they are real, but he also acknowledges that God is real and that God is still good. He acknowledges that what has caused him harm is real, but he also acknowledges where his help comes from. He's able to consider his difficulties, his pains, without being consumed by them. But church fam, that isn't always easy, is it? <laughs> Say it again. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's not always easy to point our eyes to God and his goodness when we are in the depths of our pain and our suffering. Not even a little bit. Pain and suffering has this ability to, to dictate how we perceive everything in our life. It can easily be the lens that, that alters how we look at everything around us. It has the ability to consume everything in our minds. 
Yet, we see here in Psalm 55 that when life is stacked against him, David is able to both be raw and honest with God, right? But he's also able to pivot. He's also able to reorient himself back to the reality of who God is. He's able to move forward and not be conquered by his circumstances. Being able to reorient ourselves and focus on God can save us from a number of things. One of which is despair. Despair. Despair is the utter loss of hope. We can't fully pursue mental and emotional wholeness without allowing ourselves to feel our real emotions. Many educated therapists and psychologists and uh, psychiatrists would agree that suppressing and ignoring our emotions is bad for us long term. And for many of us, even though we know this, we still don't allow ourselves to process and deal with our emotions. Some of you, uh, during the sermon last week, during life group maybe, or who knows, maybe even during this sermon, have felt feelings of fear about actually processing your emotions. Last week, I mentioned how writing out our emotions can be very helpful for us. And some of you felt timid and afraid when he said that. You might have felt that that was going a, a tad further than you actually wanted to go. So you didn't. We're afraid that if we process our painful emotions, it will cause us to spiral into misery. Or maybe we're just afraid we'll get stuck in this loop that is despair. And deep down, we, we believe that it's better, ultimately, to create a false reality and not try to let ourselves grieve, even though there are things in our lives and in our world that are worth grieving. Some of us have not properly processed all of the shootings that have been going on in our world. Some of us in the room have not properly processed this pandemic that we have been living in. You haven't allowed yourself to actually feel it. You haven't allowed yourself to feel that literally our world has been different since it. Some of us have had death in our families and haven't processed it yet. Oh, I'll be strong for so-and-so. I'll get to that later. I have a lot of work to do. Well, trust me, I know this all too well because this is me. We've concluded that emotionally trying to live a lie just feels better. It feels better than acknowledging the emotional weight of living in a fallen and broken world because it strikes fear in our hearts. We live in a world that is full of darkness. And I'm convinced that we're often afraid to process our emotions because we're afraid that if we walk through that darkness, it might overtake us. 
That if we allow ourselves to feel any of the darkness, we won't be able to handle it. And while we don't really think about it, do you know what that functionally tells me that we don't believe about God? It means that we don't believe we can find enough peace in order that God can deal with the darkness. We don't believe that he can actually, as the psalmist says, sustain us. We don't believe that he can supernaturally give us the peace and the strength to deal with every arrow shot our way, which is why we feel this despair. It's because we think that the the darkness is too great to conquer. That this is just how life is from now on. And that, church fam, is the very essence of hopelessness. To believe that the darkness has won, that it is too great. And if this is you, you might be saying, you know, or you might notice in your life a what's the point attitude. You might be saying, what is the point to all of this when it comes to seeking God and praying to him when things are going on in your life? You're like, what is the point? I don't expect God to act. Where, where is God in all of this, really? I don't expect him to sustain me. I don't expect to find any peace, so why would I engage with God? Let me say it another way. Why would I pray to God? Because it's not like he's going to fix it. That probably hits a little closer to home, right? Why would I pray to God? Because it's not like he is going to fix it. It's not like the problems are going to go away. What I want to do is expose what we are saying. What we are saying is that we only truly believe we can find peace and joy in our circumstances uh, if our circumstances change and not in the solid rock that is our God. It exposes that, that we only truly believe we will be okay if the circumstances change. So if I don't believe God won't change it, why should I pour out my heart? We, we functionally don't believe he is our refuge, as the Psalms say. Really what we believe is that the only place that is safe is getting away from whatever this thing is that is troubling us right now. And hear me say, I totally get that. I totally get that, but also hear me say, Jesus says, I will be with you always. We don't believe him to be the Prince of Peace, like Isaiah says, or the God of all comfort, like 2 Corinthians says. We think peace and joy are only circumstantial. We need to 
be honest with ourselves and honest with God. That we don't believe what Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God in the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, we don't believe this will happen. We don't trust God to give us his peace when we practice prayer and thanksgiving in all things. So we ask, what is, what's the point? We become apathetic towards seeking God in times of trouble. We start developing a defeatist mentality where we have no expectation for God to actually give us supernatural peace in our lives. And so we try not to think about it. We try to escape our problems. And we use any and every means possible to escape, right? We all do this. We all do this. We all have phones that we constantly scroll through, Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. Netflix. I mean, you pick and choose. I mean, the Great British Bake Off, right? Come on. It's pretty good. Because we don't trust God and because we don't believe in his word, all we have left is despair. And what God is calling all of us to do, every single one of us in this room, is to repent. He's calling us. He is pleading with us to look at him. He is saying, you have been down in your feelings for so long. You've been dealing with this without me for far too long. Repent. Turn towards me. Reorient. Turn your focus back to me. And we see David do just that, right? Where, where he reorients his life and lifts his eyes off of the reality of all of the things that grieve him, all of the things that are around him, all of his pain, all of his suffering, and he intentionally puts his eyes back on God. love how this is done in Psalm 42, 5 through 6. It says this, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Sometimes reorienting yourself looks like preaching to yourself. Sometimes we do way too much listening to ourselves and need to do a little more preaching to ourselves. The psalmist notices this turmoil inside of him and tells himself that that he is going to praise God even though he is feeling pretty down about himself. 
even though there's a disturbance in his soul. Even though there's relational strife, even though work is tough, even though there's financial strain, God is asking you to reorient yourself back to him. The psalmist says, my soul is downcast, but I will remember you. He sees his state of being cast down as a reason to remember God. He's not defeatist or apathetic towards God because of his pain. In fact, he sees it as a reason to turn to God. Your pain and your suffering that you are experiencing, it's, it's very real. Hear me say that. It is very real right now. And I know those nights can get long sometimes. Where you are crying out for somebody, anyone, to be near to you. And I just want you to know that God is near. He is near to the brokenhearted. God is just as real as your pain and suffering, if not more real. Let me say that again. God is just as real as your pain and your suffering, if not more real. You see, when we reorient ourselves to remember God, God uses that. He uses all of that to save us from despair. But not only can reorienting ourselves save us from this despair, but it can also save us from living with a victim mentality. A victim mentality. This, this might seem a little disconnected from reorientation, but stay with me. Stay with me. Many of us in the room have been hurt by others. We've had extreme loss and grief. And hear me say up front, it is not wrong to feel any of that. Like we said at the top, you should, you should be telling God everything. You need to tell God everything. But it's easy, right, not to go to God and to allow these feelings to really consume us entirely. And for some of us in the room, we actually might perceive life in such a way that that now our pain and our loss and our grief determine our interpretation of every single event, uh, event in our life. Examples of our past experiences determine how we interpret future occurrences. Some of us have been told that we are failures. And maybe you have failed quite a bit over the years. And what this mentality does is it sows the seed that, that we are now going to expect to fail for the rest of our lives. 
For some of us in the room, we are afraid to take risks because of that. That one small seed was sown, and now that is our whole life. And that is the lens that we look at everything with. For others in the room, it it hits a little deeper and personal. It's more hurtful than that. For some of us, we've been victims of neglect, of abandonment, betrayal, very much like David had been. And for some of us, the list could just go on and on, right? We all have stories. We've experienced great pain from what has been done to us, and for that, I am sorry. I'm sorry that you've had to live through all of this. And I know for some of us, we've, we've gone through counseling and are going through counseling because of someone else's sin toward us. And we are trying to deal with it as best as we can. But for some of us who even go to counseling and for many who don't go to counseling, among notes to us, we now have a tendency to read every situation, every relationship, every interaction through the lens of past pains. And we do this because we have let the fact that we've been a victim dictate our perception and our whole identity. So now we interpret what happens to us in life through the lens of I will always be a victim. In all painful relational experiences we have, even if we may have contributed just as much sin and wrongdoing as the other person, we now only see the other person's sin and oftentimes not our own. Seemingly, in every scenario, it's always someone else's fault. And sadly, that hits at our culture at large, right? Everyone is pointing the finger at someone else, and no one seems to be accepting any responsibility. And even when they do it, it feels superficial. It feels almost like a marketing ploy of some kind. No one is doing things out of humility anymore. And the sad news is that this tendency can often find its way into the church. Instead of the church being shaped by who God is and what he says in his word and how he asks us to deal with all of these experiences. We are shaped by the culture around us instead. And I say all of that to say that we need to be able to recognize these tendencies in our church family so that we can lovingly expose this mindset to to help people to see Jesus. Sometimes you just need to help one another, encourage one another, and point them back to Jesus. Because this, this mentality is more damaging than we might realize. Because what it does is it, it prevents us from being able to pursue true growth. And the only way to grow is to admit when we are off in things. This mentality, it it robs us of our ability to thrive and and to progress because we never deal with the behaviors that are keeping us from prospering. When we won't admit our fault and continually blame everybody else, we essentially stagnate our growth. 
Someone with this mentality ends up convinced that they're a helpless victim of their circumstances because everything that is hindering and harming them is external, which means there's nothing they can do about it. They become resentful and bitter towards God because their minds are consumed with their hardship and they keep asking God, where are you? Haven't I been through enough? They lack the joy that comes from being able to play a role in one's own healing and progress. Church fam, hear me say, I know this is heavy, um, but if someone tries to help you see where you might be off in things and does so lovingly and graciously and patiently over time, I need you to hear me say they are not your enemy. If someone points out your sin to you in a loving way, in a patient way, in a gracious way, they are not your enemy. Matter of fact, the Bible calls us to do that for one another. But you know who your enemy is. It is this victim mentality. That is the true enemy. Some of you need to have honest conversations with people in your life group about this. Not in a self-righteous, holier-than-thou type of way, none of that. We don't want any of that. Get that out of here. But in a way that exposes the lies that the enemy tries to feed our brothers and sisters in the room. We need to be able to expose these lies and point them to the truth that we find in Jesus. And if you have been made new in Christ through faith in him, hear me say your victimization doesn't ultimately define you. Now you might be asking, now what does all this have to do with reorientation, Marcus? Seems like we took a left turn. (laughs) If you are a follower of Jesus that suffers from this type of mindset, then you are in desperate need of reorientation. When we are hyper-focused and consumed by this mentality, we end up viewing ourselves exclusively through this lens, and we don't allow the good news of Jesus to tell us actually who we are. See, the enemy burrows into our minds and tries to use our pain to tell us who we are, but our identity is in who our Savior is. The reality that we all must face and should lament is that we are actually all victims. See, if you suffer from this mentality, you only look at yourself as being a victim, but the reality is that we all are. Everyone in this room is a victim. I know you've been through a lot. I know you've probably seen a lot in your time. Many of us have experienced a lot. But I'm here to tell you, you're not the only one. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says this, For as in Adam all die. For as in Adam, all die. 
Ever since Adam ate from the tree that God told him not to eat from, the world was plagued with death, and we inherited from our first forefather the curse of sin. And the biggest implication of that is death. In fact, from birth, everything that is alive in this world will move toward death. Our bodies will eventually break down and die, no matter if you are Dwayne the Rock Johnson and you seemingly are at the apex, right, the apex of health and fitness, or if you are the president of the United States and have all of the access to all of the best health care and you have all of the medical officials, everybody, all the advisors, everything, we all die. And we don't just die, but through life we also have physical ailments and injuries, injuries and illnesses. I know some of you young people in the room may not feel all of that, but just wait it's coming. It's coming, I can tell you. It's coming. Um, every possession that you own will one day fall apart. Every relationship that you have will not last in its current state because time always wins. Always. The reality is that we are all victims in this life, and that is real, that is true. And that truth is worthy to be mourned and lamented. You need to grieve over that. You need to talk to God about that. We have all either suffered or seen others suffer, but people, but the people of God, there is another truth for those that have been made new in Christ. There's another truth for those of us who have been made new in Christ. And you don't have to look too far to find it, actually. It's in the second half of this verse. It says this, So in Christ all will be made alive. Amen? So in Christ we will all be made alive. That's pretty cool. It's crucially important that we acknowledge the fact that we have suffered under the curse of sin because of what Adam did. But it's also crucially important that we realize that through that, that though in Adam we are victims in Christ, we are also victors. It's two V's, so you know it's real. <laughs> let, me, let me speak this over you right now. Because I, I need you to hear, hear me. You are more healed than you are broken. You need to feel that. You are more healed than you are broken. You are more forgiven than you are guilty. You have been given more grace from God than you have sin in your life. God has given you way more than he has taken from you. And one day soon, 
You're going to go home to be with him. And because of Jesus' victory at the cross, you will never be a victim of sin again. And so now, in the here and now, we get to take responsibility for our actions because we are not helpless victims of our circumstances. We have been empowered by the Spirit of God to, to repent and grow out of living in ways that are not honoring to God. We've been empowered by the Spirit of God to identify and turn away from all of the behavior patterns in our life that cause us not to live as God calls us to live. We get to practice humility and listen and receive correction from our brothers and sisters in Christ. We get to see ourselves as God sees us, as victors and not just a victim. We get to walk in joy and freedom and dignity of being ready and able to take responsibility for all of the steps we need to take towards our growth, towards prospering, and towards flourishing. You see, for the Christian, reorientation is lamenting the darkness of this world and also remembering what we see in John 1.5 where it says this. It says, the light, amen, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Let that sit with you for a little bit. It says the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Some of us are afraid to go in the dark to experience all of that pain. But the Lord says, I am with you. I am the light. I'm the light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness, it's not going to get the best of Jesus. It just won't. Family, we are... When we are given into despair and or have this victim mentality, we are allowing our minds to be overcome by the darkness of this world. But when we fight against those enemies via reorientation, it's like we are walking through the darkness while also holding on to the light. You can walk through the darkness if the light you have is strong enough and bright enough to invade that darkness and provide for you what you need to continue on your way. It's helpful that John phrases the work of Christ, right, as, as the light shining in the darkness because it reminds us that undoing the effects of darkness is what Jesus is always doing. When he walked the earth, people would, you know, people would walk up to him being sick because of the darkness, and he would heal them. He came by a blind man that was literally walking in darkness, and Jesus gave him sight and light and allowed him to see the light of day. Every follower of Jesus in the room was once a part of darkness. We were all once a part of darkness. Do you realize that? For some of us, I know we've been, you know, Christians for a long time. But do you realize that you were once a part of darkness? Has anyone ever said that to you? 
We were once enslaved by darkness, but now, but now the Son has set us free. Amen? Yeah. When he went to the cross, he took on the full weight of the darkness. When he took our sins upon himself and died. His situation seemed worthy of nothing but despair. He was truly the innocent victim. Truly, but he was and is the light that also shines in the darkness. And he was raised from the dead because the darkness could not overcome him. Since Jesus came to save us, he has always been about the work of infiltrating the darkness and shining his light on it. Which means reorienting our thoughts to focus on Christ then is bringing the reality of our salvation in Christ to bear in our life. And as we do so, then we draw the same conclusion that David draws at the end of the psalm. He says, but you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. David concludes by saying, God, the men that have harmed me, that have done all mounts of evil against me, I'll leave that in your hands. I know you're good, and I know you are just. And I'm, I'm not going to try to get vengeance myself. It's tough. It's tough to say. When someone's wronged you, it's tough to say, God, you handle this. I, I, you have this. At least for me it is. It's, it's tough to not have all these you know, mental images of how you're going to get back at said person. But David says, I trust in you. As we close, band, you guys can actually come on up. Here's what I want us to remember. If you zoned out, that is. If we're afraid to process our negative emotions, remember that he'll sustain us through the darkness. If we are in despair because of our pain and grief, remember that he can give us joy in the midst of our pain and grief. If we have allowed the wrong done to us to tell us we are ultimately just a helpless victim, remember when he tells us that we are victors, even if we don't feel like it in the moment. Romans 8, 37 says this, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If we follow after Jesus, we have to come to a place where we can acknowledge our pain, our grief, our suffering, everything that is going on in our lives. We can acknowledge all of that to God. We can lament all of that to God. But we can't just stop right there. We can't just vent and be done. We have to reorient ourselves back to God. We have to turn our focus back to God. Because you, you can acknowledge your emotions are real, but you can also acknowledge that God is real 
and still good. Let's pray. been through a lot um, and we just want to say that yeah will you help us will you help us to lament and to reorient Lord help us to do both of those things we want to pour out ourselves to you Lord 